Hi, and welcome to the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. On today's episode, we are going to speak with New York Law School Professor Art Leonard, Chief Editor and Writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments here and abroad. We're recording in progress. Hi, Art. How you doing? Okay. Good. Good to see you this week. How was your, you were at the Met yesterday, right? Yeah, I was at the Met and I was at the Philharmonic two in one day. Oh, amazing. Uh, I, I like concentrated doses of culture. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Get, get it all. It's like all intensive. Well, it, it gives me an excuse not to do any other work on that day. <laughs> That's good. We did um, Little Shop of Horrors uh, the night before last. And then last night we saw Rocky Horror Show up at uh, Forestburg Playhouse, which is out in the woods here. Um, and both were so much fun. It was my first time back in a the theater. I loved it. Oh, I've been in the theater a few times now. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I saw a very good play at Second Stage Theater, Letters from Suresh. It was really, really good. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll offer, a, maybe we should do a theater and, and classical music review podcast as well. <laughs> we could if you want to. <laughs> You're not stretched too thin, are you, Art? Oh, um, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. All right. Well, let's um, let's dig right in because we have a lot to talk about today. Um, and they really, once again, these run the gamut. Art, I really appreciate you. One of the segments we're going to be talking about a criminal law case um, that usually, you know, Bill Rold uh, handles a lot of the write-ups, but we don't cover a lot because we're traditionally doing um, the civil matters and the constitutional things. Um, but this criminal case should be really, really interesting for folks. So, uh, and then we've got an inner case of international intrigue. Uh -huh. um, so yeah, a wide variety of stuff. So let's dig right in. Okay. Um, in this first case, Dr. Tudor is a 54-year-old Native American woman who is transgender and had worked as an English professor at Southeastern Oklahoma University for seven years. A jury found in her favor concluding that her former employer violated Title VII by illegally discriminating and retaliating against her by denying her tenure, although um, not allowing her to, and not allowing her to reapply the following year, and then terminating her. And in this first case, we're going to look at the district court ruling that reduced the jury award and the reinstatement and a subsequent Tenth Circuit panel ruling reinstating her with tenure. It's a long journey, but on deck is Art to walk us through it. Walk us through it, Art. Unpack it. Okay. Well, she started working at uh, Southeastern Oklahoma State University in 2004, at which time she was presenting as he. And when they, they hired uh, Dr. Tudor uh, and she decided to transition after she'd been there a while, uh, she'd been there three years and uh, she transitioned over the summer. She returned for the fall 2007 semester as Rachel Tudor and the following fall, she applied for tenure and uh, evidently prematurely because the uh, the way it works at Southeastern Oklahoma is they appoint a special committee to for each tenure decision. And so uh, the chair of the English department put together a committee of five members of the department, tenured members of the department, and they decided she hadn't published enough yet. And uh, her uh, service activity also was a bit skimpy, they thought at that point. So 
they told her reapply the next year. They turned her down and she applied the next year, by which time she had two articles accepted for publication and she'd done a lot more uh, service work and other things. And this time the committee voted four to one in her favor. And the department chair agreed with the committee and passed the recommendation up into the university hierarchy. And this is where uh, things turn sour. Uh, the uh, Dean of uh, the Faculty of Arts and Sciences recommended against granting tenure. It went up to the uh, vice president of the university who also recommended against tenure. And then to the president who recommended against tenure. And from there it goes to the board and it's a regional board because Southeastern Oklahoma is part of a, of a state university system with several different regional campuses. And that board normally rubber stamps the president's recommendation and they did in this case and uh, they denied tenure. Uh, and the purported reason was insufficient publication and service. And uh, there was evidence, she found evidence that the vice president was the real decision maker, not the president on the final recommendation, that the president basically delegated this to the vice president for academic affairs. And uh, there was evidence that uh, the vice president for academic affairs had made various homophobic, transphobic remarks, et cetera, uh, and was, was biased. But she was told by by the Dean of Arts and Sciences, well, you can apply next year, you still have a few years left on the tenure track. The way it works in higher education is there is a tenure track. And if you don't get tenure by a certain number of years, it's just not renewed, which is basically a discharge. Uh, and uh, so she had uh, a, a few years left. And she reapplied the next year, which was allowed under their handbook and their procedures. But she was told and this is after the chair of her department started putting together a new tenure committee to evaluate her. Uh, they were informed by the vice president's office to stop. We're not gonna allow this uh, reapplication here uh, for the good of the university, they said, without any explanation. Uh, so she got to work grieving, uh, filed internal grievance. Uh, she uh, filed uh, a discrimination claim with the US Department of Education under Title IX, which was the wrong place to file because the US Department of Education uh, under Title IX deals with discrimination against students. Discrimination against employees is covered under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 64. Uh, but eventually the matter got to the EEOC and the EEOC, this is during the Obama administration, the EEOC referred it to the Justice Department for potential litigation and the Justice Department filed suit on her behalf in the U.S. District Court in Oklahoma. Uh, but then Donald Trump was elected. I was going to say, I know where this is going. Art. Yeah, and and the, the Justice Department under Donald Trump, unlike the EEOC, took the position that uh, Title VII did not apply to discrimination because of gender identity or sexual orientation. So they promptly settled the case and uh, Luckily for her, uh, Dr. Tudor had intervened as an individual co-plaintiff and had been allowed to intervene by the district court. So uh, she was left there as the, as the sole plaintiff now with the Justice Department having fled. And I wouldn't be surprised if they were filing amicus briefs against her, which the Trump administration was doing in cases like this. Uh, but the, uh, 
the trial judge denied a motion for summary judgment by the university and sent it to a jury. She said there are enough allegations here. There was evidence about potential bias. There was evidence uh, during discovery uh, that once the committee and the department chair had recommended tenure, it was almost unheard of for the upper level administration to reject the recommendation. It was very unusual. And uh, that since the tenure committee itself, and, and we know from the history of her case that the tenure committee is not a patsy here. The tenure committee the previous year had turned her down. They said, you haven't published enough. And so she finished up some articles and got them accepted for publication. And this time they found that she had published enough. And tenure committees also look at the substance of the articles. So evidently um, a majority, four to one in the committee thought that the articles were good enough for tenure. And they also look at teaching evaluations and things of that sort and uh, committee service and other things. Uh, so I went to a jury and the jury agreed with Dr. Tudor that she was discriminated against based on her gender identity. And uh, at this point, of course, the EEOC and many courts were taking the position that gender identity discrimination is in violation of Title VII. So the jury ruled in her favor and uh, the jury evidently was overwhelmingly impressed with the evidence of discrimination because they awarded her over a million dollars of damages. Uh, now under Title VII, certain damages are capped based on the size of the employer. And uh, the cap in this case uh, was used to cut down the damages by the trial judge uh, considerably. Uh, damages that are capped are compensatory and punitive damages. Damages that are not capped are damages for back pay and front pay back pay being uh, uh, compensation for wages she should have received if she had not been wrongfully dismissed. And front pay is allowing for a certain amount of time after the decision for her to find a new job, continuing uh, the pay. And uh, the judge cut down her total damage award to under $400,000 out of a jury award of over a million. Uh, so, the university sued on uh, appeal to the 10th circuit on the merits. They said that the uh, jury's verdict was not supported by the record and the uh, 10th circuit should reverse it. And Dr. Tudor uh, appealed because her damage award was cut down sharply. She thought much more sharply than it should have been. And in addition, she had filed a motion with the court asking for reinstatement because under title seven, the preferred remedy for wrongful discharge under Title VII is reinstatement with back pay. Uh, and judge, the, uh, the district judge had said, well, there's so much hostility between her and the university that I don't think that reinstatement is an appropriate remedy in this case. And so had denied reinstatement. And there has also traditionally been some hesitancy among federal courts to second guess tenure decisions. Uh, even though it's found to be discriminatory, uh, the district court is not in a position to evaluate somebody's teaching and uh, to evaluate their publications, et cetera. And in this case, of course, the tenure committee had found that she was qualified for promotion and tenure. Uh, but the, the judge said too much hostility there. This case has been going on for years. Uh, I'm not going to order reinstatement. So uh, Dr. Uh, Tudor 
on her appeal is asking for appropriate recalculation of her damages. And in addition, she wanted reinstatement. And the uh, unanimous decision here by a three-judge panel of uh, the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals that she's entitled to reinstatement. And they said, there are a few things that the trial judge didn't take into account here. For one thing, her, her, her tensions here, her, the hostility is with the administration, not with her department, not with her colleagues, not with her department chair. Uh, and it turns out that every member of the administration who was involved in turning down her tenure is no longer at the university. So, you know, hostility, it sort of disappears. Uh, and in addition, found that the trial judge had committed clear error in calculating the back pay and front pay damages uh, because uh, the, the trial judge had misunderstood the evidence that was presented on her pay. It seems that because of the timing of things, she only worked a portion of a year for the last calendar year in which she was employed. And the trial judge looked at the records that were submitted, usually you know, tax forms and things like that can be submitted to document income and decided uh, to take the amount of income that she'd actually earned that year and count that as a year's income, even though she was only there for part of a year. And so the calculations were all off. And, and so the court uh, ordered a remand uh, for a total recalculation. So she's going to get much more in damages than the amount that was uh, awarded by the trial judge. Maybe not as much as the uh, jury awarded because the jury was oblivious to the statutory cap on compensatory and punitive damages. Uh, and there was very good evidence uh, in support of the punitive damages here. And also damages for emotional distress because of the way she was treated. Uh, so, assuming that everything goes uh, as, as, you know, a matter of course at this point, you know, the, uh, the issue of damages doesn't get strung out too long, she will eventually be reinstated uh, with full back pay. And uh, she will be the first out trans person to be a tenured faculty member at Southeastern Oklahoma State University. Wow. Yeah. Another blow for progress here. What a story and such a long journey. It just goes to show how long these cases really take to, I mean, she got dumped by the, the Justice Department. I mean, all of the various, um, you know, hiccups that happen along the way, it's a long journey towards some kind of um, restitution or justice. And I guess math skills and lawyering aren't the same side of the brain. Well, it's, it's accounting skills, you know, being able to read financial records and stuff. But, you know, there's another point that I, I commented on uh, at the end of the article. First of all, that Jill Weiss is her, uh, oh, mm -hmm. you know, represents her, who was uh, longtime legal member or board member and, uh, is uh, one of the leading advocates in the country on transgender law and assisted by Ezra Young, another out transgender lawyer, both of them uh, with practices based in Brooklyn. Uh, but they of course had local counsel as well in Oklahoma in order to litigate in the district court there. Uh, but another point is that because of the composition of the 10th circuit, any attempt by the university to get on bank review of the reinstatement order seems unlikely to be successful because uh, Barack Obama uh, got to appoint a lot of judges to the 10th Circuit for some reason. There were a lot of openings there. Uh, half of the active judges on the 10th Circuit uh, 
were appointed by Barack Obama. And uh, Donald Trump got only two nominations and three other judges, judges were appointed by George W. Bush. So a majority of judges in the circuit uh, are uh, Obama appointees. And the judge who wrote the opinion, uh, Judge Ebel is a senior judge uh, and uh, he gets to vote as well. And it would be very unusual if the judge who wrote the panel decision voted for a bank review. So this is pretty final, I think, unless uh, the university is going to go for a cert petition, uh, which I doubt. Right. Wow. That's a really interesting story and uh, really great advocacy. Um, yeah. Fascinating. So let's go ahead and take a break. And when we come back, we'll go across the pond for our next case. Somehow I knew you were going to say across the pot. How did you know I was going to say that? Because it's the cliche that everyone uses. <laughs> Are you saying I'm predictable, Art? Well, no, this, time you, this, up enough, this time you were. I, I, well, he's going to start by saying, now we go across the pot. <laughs> All right. I just got called out. Um, well, well, you can edit that out. <laughs> Hardly. All right. Law Notes, as folks will know, is the most comprehensive monthly publication covering not just LGBTQ legal developments in the U.S., but also abroad. And in this case, we're going to look at a ruling from the U.K. Court of Appeal, the civil division, which looked at the issue of whether a person under the age of 18 is able to provide informed consent to begin gender trans uh, gender uh, transition treatment in the form of puberty blockers. Uh, it's an interesting case, Art. Tell us about it. Yeah, this is this is a case uh, in which a uh, the trial court, the high court, stunned everybody by issuing a decision which appeared to suggest, it's not clear that it really ordered it, but appeared to suggest that minors do not have the capacity to consent to getting started on gender transition. And for very young minors, uh, the way you start if they're on the verge of puberty is you, uh, you prescribe puberty blockers, that is uh, medications that keep the uh, individual from developing the secondary sex characteristics that are produced during puberty. Uh, and uh, the advantage of doing this, of course, is then you don't have to reverse them later on. Uh, you, you may uh, be able to avoid some aspects, uh, especially uh, some surgical aspects of transition. Uh, and uh, this, this doesn't refer to cross-sex hormone treatment, although as well, uh, the, uh, the high court suggested that minors are not capable of consenting to that as well. And uh, this case was uh, brought by two different claimants. Actually, I think it was consolidated. One, uh, a former patient of the Tavistock and Portman National Health Service Foundation Trust. It's a long name. So we just refer to it as Tavistock. Uh, Tavistock, we're told, operates the only gender identity treatment program in England under the National Health Service for children under the age of 18. Uh, that is legal minors. Uh, and it does, uh, it diagnoses gender dysphoria and then it makes referrals for treatment. And it makes referrals to two other National Health Service uh, entities that uh, will actually provide the treatment. Uh, and they don't provide the treatment unless the minor and their parent or guardian agrees and their doctor agrees that it is appropriate. Uh, 
uh, and the, the, the big sticking point here is can a minor agree? And if a minor can't agree, can it be ordered by a court? And, and uh, the answer is, well, of course, a court can order that someone be given, uh, you know, puberty blockers or uh, cross-sex hormone treatment. But having to go to a court introduces delay, introduces expenses of litigation, et cetera. And normally courts don't get involved in deciding whether someone can have medical treatment. In fact, parents give consent for medical treatment for minors all the time. Uh, should this be something that has to go to a court? Uh, and that's really the issue that was taken up on appeal by the Court of Appeal. And the Court of Appeal unanimously said, no, they don't have to. Uh, they, uh, now, the, uh, the plaintiffs in this case could appeal to the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom, presumably, uh, whether they would get there. I mean, that's, that court, like the US Supreme Court, has docket control. They don't have to take every appeal. Uh, but the court and the court of appeals opinions, except in unusual cases, would be pretty much final. But the court of appeal, uh, the the argument that Tavistock made to the court of appeal was that the high court's decision misapplied the applicable law. It was wrong in concluding that puberty blockers were experimental and their effects lifelong and life changing. Uh, there was expert testimony that, in fact, uh, the effect of using pu puberty blockers is reversible. You just have a delayed puberty. <laughs> Uh, it's, it doesn't extinguish the ability of the body to go through puberty. It just stops it from happening for some period of time while you're uh, waiting for the person to become old enough and mature enough to handle the next steps. And uh, surgery is not a next step uh, under the guidelines until someone is, is uh, above the age of, uh, of majority. Uh, so... Uh, also said that the decision of the uh, high court was improperly based on the expert evidence submitted by the claimants and discriminated against children with gender dysphoria in violation of the European Convention on Human Rights. Well, the court didn't feel it had to get into all of these. Uh, it just said the declaration of the high court covered areas of disputed fact, expert evidence and medical opinion and should not have been granted. And uh, it said that it placed patients, parents, and clinicians in a very difficult position. In practice, the guidance would have the effect of denying treatment in many circumstances for want of resources to make such an application, that is an application to a court, coupled with the inevitable delay through court involvement. In fact, there's such a long waiting list just to be diagnosed by Tavistock that uh, when people get on the waiting list, it can be one or two years before they even get to a gender dysphoria diagnosis. And you might think by then the person may not be a minor anymore, but actually uh, the, the sort of startling thing in this area is that uh, people are, children are identifying as transgender at younger and younger ages. And this has become uh, a very disputed issue uh, in many countries, uh, the age at which someone should be allowed to transition we know here in the United States, there are legislative proposals in, in several states that would absolutely prohibit providing any gender transition to minors. Yeah, it's interesting. And you did bring up the uh, legislative, um, uh, what we've seen coming out of, I believe, Arkansas passed a bill denying gender affirming care for youth and uh, something in the neighborhood of 10 other states 
uh, were considering similar bills that would either penalize the medical professionals for uh, gender affirming care for minors or the parents in many instances. So, um, you know, it's it's that and sports for some reason in these states' legislatures where they just, well, an abortion, obviously. Well, and we have to recognize that these are wedge issues, that these yeah. are basically red state Republican legislatures that are going for this. Right. But these are real, you know, real kids and putting them in real, real harm. Um, so I'm thank you so much for covering this. And this is a positive development for sure. And credit where credit is due, because Eric Wersthorn, one of our contributing writers, who's a law secretary to a New York state judge, wrote this article. Okay. Uh, under, under his employment, he's not allowed to write for publication about American law. Oh. So when I get a, uh, a, a foreign uh, opinion, I throw it his way. and uh, He does a very good job on it. Fantastic. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's take a short break and come back and talk about our last case. So LGBTQ people are overrepresented at every stage of our criminal justice system. And while incarcerated, LGBTQ individuals are subject to particularly inhumane conditions and treatments many times. In this next case, uh, the inmate has met with indifference and hostility from a private Florida prison system. And we're going to discuss the case that was brought by this inmate alleging violations of the Eighth and Fourteenth Amendment. Art, tell us about this. And we should kind of start off with, uh, you know, this is disturbing facts here to read about. Right, disturbing facts. And we, we also should note the special role that Legal has played in this case. Uh, this is uh, Chris Brown is an inmate in, uh, in Florida, state uh, inmate, and Florida has subcontracted the operation of a substantial part of its state prison system to a private contractor, the GEO Group, and the GEO Group actually runs prisons in many different states, and they have a somewhat variable reputation about the quality of the work they're doing. Uh, presumably, the state of Florida thinks they can get this done more efficiently by uh, subcontracting it to a private, a private for-profit corporation. Uh, and at an early stage in this case, uh, which predates the events, uh, the litigation events described by Bill Rold, our uh, prisoner litigation uh, expert who, who writes all our prisoner litigation articles. Uh, at a very early stage, uh, Chris Brown, who was subjected to a horrendous gay bashing in the prison yard, uh, by other prisoners yelling uh, epithets at him and stuff. And uh, he was seriously injured. He was hospitalized. Uh, and the question is, does he have any constitutional rights in this situation to redress of any sort against the operator of the prison? I mean, if he, he wants to sue the inmates who beat him up, I suppose he could bring uh, tort claims under state, state law. But uh, he sought by himself at first, pro se, to pursue the course of uh, filing internal grievances, which he claims they rejected, they refused to take them. This is a, a problem that is frequently faced by gay and transgender inmates. They want to file grievances, and the only way they can do it is to give it to a corrections officer to file, and the corrections officers toss them in the trash. You know, they in many cases their uh, complaints don't get anywhere. Then they can try to send mail to the to the warden or send mail uh, to the Bureau of Prisons, uh, the, the State Corrections Department. Uh, but this, uh, the prison will normally have an internal 
grievance procedure and exhausting the internal grievance procedure is one of the steps that under the Prison Litigation Reform Act that you have to take. Uh, and even though this is a state prison, federal statutes like the Prison Litigation Reform Act apply because he's filing his uh, claim uh, in federal court, uh, asserting rights under the Eighth and Fourteenth Amendments, Eighth Amendment, uh, cruel and unusual punishment, Fourteenth Amendment, discrimination based on sexual orientation in this case. And uh, he claimed that his uh, grievances at the uh, South Bay uh, Correctional Facility were ignored or thrown away. And he filed uh, his uh, pro se action. And the way this works is you file in federal district court and the district judges refer them to magistrate judges for screening before they even uh, officially serve it on the prison and ask for an answer, uh, they will screen it uh, to see if it states a plausible claim. And in this case, the uh, original magistrate judge, uh, pretty much on his own motion, because after all, the uh, prison hasn't been asked for a response yet, he's just screening it on the face of the complaint, said, well, the GL group is a private group, you can't sue them under the constitution. And so just uh, recommended to the district judge that the case be dismissed. Uh, now, these magistrate decisions are not officially published by West or, you know, in the uh, in the official federal reporters like the federal supplement. Uh, but West Long and Lexus picked them up. And when I do my searches for cases for law notes, uh, I pick them up if they're on Westlaw Alexis. So I read the magistrate's decision in this and I was horrified. I thought, just a minute, the state has contracted with this company. The company is, is standing in for the state. Does that mean that the prisoners in their prison have no redress for constitutional violations because the GL group is a private company, not the government? Just a minute. Uh, and uh, so when I sent that, uh, magistrate opinion over to Bill Rold to write up for the law notes, I, I asked the question, I said, is this a kind of case where it might be worth sending a letter to the judge? Uh, you know, is, is it true that uh, a prisoner who is subjected to cruel and unusual punishment, like being mercilessly beaten up and seriously injured, has no constitutional redress against the prison because it's a private prison? Uh, and build a little research and discovered that under a Florida statute, the GEO group, by contracting with the state, agrees that it is not immune. It is not immune to constitutional claims. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we sent a letter to the judge and the judge responded to our letter by authorizing us to file an amicus brief which we eventually filed on behalf of Legal, uh, mainly written by Bill with a few little tweaks by me. And uh, we persuaded the judge to vacate her initial decision to accept the recommendation to dismiss the case. And it was assigned to a new magistrate and the new magistrate said the case could go forward. And uh, Bill uh, and uh, an attorney uh, down in Florida were designated, uh, were appointed to represent uh, Mr. Brown. Uh, and so uh, they were able to do some discovery. They were able to depose people, among other things. Uh, they deposed the warden and the warden claimed not to know anything about hate crimes laws. <laughs> and, you know, the, the state of Florida has a hate crimes law and this sounds like a hate crime. 
but uh, and and under the uh, and and this is another aspect of this of this case, which is so dismaying. The federal government, uh, after much media uh, controversy and debate about uh, sexual assaults in prisons by one prisoner against another, or by corrections officers against prisoners, they passed the Prison Rape Prison Rape Elimination Act (PREA), and they made a a crucial mistake in passing that act by not including a private right of action. So, and there is no real systemic enforcement of it. And so in this case, for example, uh, under the, uh, if there's any sexually related uh, assault or something like that in a prison, that doesn't just have to be a rape. It can be any kind of sexually related assault. It's supposed to be documented and reported. But it turns out this prison doesn't keep any record. The GEO group doesn't have any data about anti-gay harassment in the prison, even though the statute says you're supposed to have it. You're supposed to have it. Uh, so this fatally undercut this case, ultimately. I mean, we had discovery and then uh, a motion by the uh, defendants to uh, for summary judgment. And the, the magistrate judge recommended granting the motion for summary judgment. Uh, and Judge Rosenberg, who had originally responded to our letter by letting us file an amicus brief and they revived the case and they allowed it to go forward. Ultimately, she granted the motion for summary judgment because she said, you know, what we're looking at here is should Geo Group be held liable here for the assault that was committed by Chris on Chris Brown by fellow inmates? And the issue there under the Eighth Amendment is whether the prison had reason to know that uh, he was in danger of some sort. And they said he did not provide any evidence of any prior threats by anybody to commit violence against him. And his, his case turned on the idea, one, that the, uh, the prison was understaffed. There weren't enough guards. He said they had hundreds and hundreds of inmates milling around in the yard and only a handful of guards. And the guards were easily distracted. And he said, when I was beat up, the only guard that I knew was at the opposite end of the yard and was talking with some inmates and didn't see anything and claimed he didn't see anything. Uh, and it was only when uh, when he was uh, very badly injured and other inmates called the guard and they, they eventually uh, took him to uh, for medical care. But uh, he said they're understaffed. They're deliberately understaffed. They're a for-profit corporation and they're not adequately staffing uh, the prison yard when they let prisoners out. Uh, in addition, he said that there is a culture of homophobia in that prison. They segregate gay, bi, and trans inmates at mealtime and the pill line and the recreation yard, uh, even for taking haircuts, <laughs> they separate them. Uh, and uh, there are all kinds of prison uh, rape elimination act violations. Uh, they insisted that Brown's assault was investigated just like any other inmate. He claims that the investigation was totally botched uh, and uh, that's uh, the basis of his 14th Amendment claim. He said that he did not receive uh, the kind of investigation that they should be doing here. Uh, and uh, that uh, any evaluation of his equal protection claim should uh, invoke heightened scrutiny. But uh, the, uh, the report and recommendation by the magistrate judge doesn't do that and seems to be rather oblivious about both 11th Circuit and 
Supreme Court uh, cases, uh, you know, uh, uh, part of the briefing in this case uh, in objecting to the magistrate's recommendation of uh, granting summary judgment motion was to lay out for Judge Rosenberg the panoply of federal cases now finding that heightened scrutiny is appropriate in equal protection claims, uh, pointing out uh, the uh, prison rape elimination act violations by the prison, pointing out the homophobic atmosphere in the prison, but uh, it's it's sort of odd. Judge Rosenberg says, oh yes, it's very concerning that there's homophobia in the prison, et cetera. But basically it seems, uh, and the way Bill Roll describes it, he says that you have to show that the prison is a virtual charnel house before you'll find that the uh, prison is on notice that there's uh, so much violence going on that they should have more guards and they should provide more protection for inmates. Uh, she said there wasn't enough here to infer that the prison was on notice that there was a problem. Uh, there weren't enough incidents. There weren't enough, and, and the prison wasn't keeping records based on the sexual orientation of inmates who were the subject of, uh, of attacks. So there was no data really. Uh, and there hadn't been a serious physical attack on an inmate in the previous year and a half before Brown was assaulted. So she said, well, you know, they weren't on notice. So there's no Eighth Amendment liability on the part of the prison here. Uh, I suppose one could appeal to the 11th Circuit, but uh, as Bill Rold observes in his article, uh, the 11th Circuit has been very permissive where it comes to, uh, to prisons and including prisons run by private corporations. So, you know, we, we have a, a serious problem here. And part of the problem is that not much attention is paid to the situation of uh, LGBTQ plus inmates. Uh, we try to report on every case that surfaces. And the reason we devote so much space in Lonos to this is because no one else is doing it. Who is watching these magistrate judges? Who is looking at their opinions, which are not even officially published, which only show up on electronic databases and not in the official reporters? Uh, who is paying attention to what uh, the district judges do in ruling on these cases? The overwhelming majority of these cases are, are pro se. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's frequently the prisoner files a motion together with their complaint asking for the appointment of counsel. And uh, judges will say, well, I looked at your pro se complaint and I think you can handle it. And the reason they're saying that you can handle this because they're going to dismiss it. We know if a case actually gets past screening and gets to uh, discovery, how is a pro se inmate going to conduct discovery? It's incredible. But the answer to the question of who is watching, at least we know it's we are. you. <laughs> it's you, it's Bill Rold, it's our readers. And we appreciate your advocacy here in this respect, at least some of the major wrong here was was redressed um, in that, you know, the prison could be potentially held liable as a state actor, which is critically important for any semblance of being able to hold these bad actors accountable. But then um, the Eighth Amendment and equal protection bar, at least in the 11th Circuit, is set so high. Yeah, it's um, it's all really upsetting. And um, it just makes a case, you know, Biden's been appointing some more uh, defendant, you know, uh, criminal 
defend uh, public defenders is what I'm looking for uh, to the federal bench, and that's that could be an important development just to have. Help. Yeah, it will help. So, Art, give us a law note. What do you have for us? For of note, okay. Of note, we're going. Oh, back. an of note. Yes, we're, we're going back to criminal law. law again, and this is okay. a a decision by one of our favorite judges, now a a senior judge, I believe, Lynn Windmill of the U.S. District Court in Idaho. Uh, longtime Law Notes uh, podcast listeners will remember that Judge Windmill was the one who ordered uh, Audrey Edmo have a uh, sex change operation in prison in Idaho. Well, Judge Windmill in this case was confronting a situation of uh, two men who uh, were told by the state of Idaho that they had to register as sex offenders based on very, very old convictions that predated Lawrence versus Texas uh, for uh, offenses that uh, after Lawrence versus Texas would not be considered criminal. One of them was a straight man. One of them was a gay man. Uh, they were convicted. Uh, the gay man was convicted in another jurisdiction uh, and uh, had moved, I believe, from Montana to, to uh, Idaho and was told, well, he had to register as a sex offender here. And he said, yeah, but I was convicted. Uh, it was a sodomy charge. It was with a young man, but he was of age. Uh, and I was very young at the time. And why should I now be, you know, in a sex offender registry? And, you know, we have a lot of litigation going on around the country about sex offender registries and uh, the way uh, that they are being allegedly misused in various ways to uh, inflict additional penalties on people who have done their time, and, you know, serve their time. Uh, so in this case, Judge Windmill said, well, if, if the conviction could not be uh, done today, uh, requiring him to register as a sex offender, this is the John Doe plaintiff. The other, the straight man was named, but uh, the, the gay man was not. Uh, it uh, violates, violates the right to procedural due process and equal protection. Uh, and however, uh, Judge Windmill declined a, uh, a request to rule that Idaho's crimes against nature statute, which is their sodomy law, was spatially unconstitutional. He said, because it does apply to non-consensual and acts in public and acts involving minors, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and it's, it's amazing to know we still have on the books in quite a few states sodomy laws that predate Lawrence versus Texas that have not been legislatively reformed, but we have courts saying, well, they don't have to be taken off the books because there's still plenty of criminal activity that is not protected by the constitution that they apply to. And as long as the courts of the state are now correctly interpreting them not to apply to adult private consensual activity, uh, we're not gonna hold them to be facially unconstitutional. That's the view in some states, not in other states, and not in every federal circuit. So we have a bit of a patchwork around the country on that still. Hmm. Wow, that's fascinating. And I remember us talking about this case once before, um, you know, as a kind of precursor to this opinion. Is that correct? Uh, it may have been a different case. I, oh, I don't okay. recall. Yeah. But, but this, is, this is a good one. We'll see if Idaho tries to appeal it up to right. uh, the circuit. All right. Well, thank you so much, Art. And I did want to tell you, we had um, our first couple of events back 
uh, in person as legal. Um, we had a women's group uh, mixer that happened at the National Arts Club that was really lovely, about 40 uh, LGBT women. Uh, and then we had our mixer at the Q, which is the new nightclub up here in Hell's Kitchen. And we had over a hundred and some uh, young professionals there all mingling. So it feels good to be back um, slowly, but surely I'm sure you feel the same way with your students. Well, definitely with my students and definitely being able to go to live performances of uh, symphony and opera and theater and things like that. But uh, I would still be a bit cautious about going to uh, a, a reception in a bar with like a hundred people which I imagine was very crowded. I imagine there was no social distancing, even if people were wearing masks. But if, if you're in a bar and you're having drinks and, and hors d'oeuvres and stuff, you're probably, the masks are coming off. Oh, yeah. And I mean, everybody's requiring um, vaccination. You know, vaccination at this point. All the bars are complying. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a question, I think, for a lot of people to grapple with about how much risk they're willing to take in their lives. And at the same time, you know, how important it is to provide these networking opportunities. As you know, with law students, they just haven't had the exposure to the typical internships that we all get, aren't meeting the same kind of professionals that'll help them in their career. This is vital stuff. Yeah, our first year class last year, which was entirely on Zoom, mm. they don't even know each other very well. They had very difficult time forming study groups and things like that. Uh, and Many of them, when they showed up here this fall as second year students, it was their first time in the building. <laughs> you know, since maybe uh, maybe they came to a recruitment event back in uh, 2019, mm -hmm. but uh, they never were in our building as a student. Right. And uh, so it was all new. And uh, they're just sort of getting acquainted with people. Uh, and, and, you know, there, there was a, a lost year, almost a year and a half lost in terms of uh, in-person contact. But we're making up for it this year, I can tell you. Yeah. Well, good. And speaking of, you need to get to grading those hundred plus exams. Uh, mid right. I have, I have midterm exams to grade. Now. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll let you get to it. Thank you so much for being a part of it. And thanks to everyone for listening. And thank you so much for listening. This and future episodes of the Legal LGBT podcast can be found online on Spotify, on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back soon.